When you set out for a backpacking trip, there are a lot of things you might be worried about. You might be focused on packing the right items or making sure that you have enough water. Your mind might drift towards the freezing nighttime temperatures, the risk of potential injury, or maybe even an animal attack. The fear that something might happen when you're out in the woods is a powerful one. But do you think that the average backpacker is afraid of being murdered? My name is Brianne, and I'm the host and creator of Among the Dirt and Trees, a show where we discuss true crime cases that occur out in nature. In this episode, we're going to talk about the untimely deaths that at least seven people met while they were out backpacking in Australia. In truth, I feel a little bad. In the last episode, I told you that we would have fun on my show, and then I proceeded to traumatize you with a tragic story about the death of a little girl. So to make it up to you, we are going to have a little murder-free chat about backpacking, and the normal dangers of going out in nature. At least we'll talk about that for a little bit before I explain how seven people met their fate at the hands of a deranged serial killer. But let's start with the fun stuff. For those of you who don't know, I live in Colorado. And in Colorado, backpacking is kind of a thing. At least that's what I hear. As you might have guessed from my show, I'm not exactly the outdoorsy type. I love hiking, but I've never been backpacking or deep woods camping or any of those cool Colorado things. But I do have a personal story that I thought you guys might enjoy. I went to college in Fort Collins, Colorado, which is an area that is surrounded by beautiful mountain trails. On one of my first ever true hikes, I went out on one of the more popular trails and I got lost because I just have zero sense of direction. Just none. And... That was fine. For a minute. But then the sun started to set. And then it got dark. And when you were out in the woods in the pitch black night with only a cell phone for light, the noises around you get a lot louder and a lot scarier. I'm a writer. That's my full-time job. So my imagination is kind of a problem sometimes. And... I was convinced that something was going to eat me and my dog while we were out there. A mountain lion, a bear, some monster from the unknown. In the end, I did make it back, but I never went hiking without a full pack of supplies again, and living in a mountain town, I also never heard the end of it. But hey, it made for a pretty good story at parties, so... Given my lack of knowledge on the topic, I asked around about backpacking and I did some of my own research and I learned some pretty interesting things. First, there are three serious risks and likely causes of death while backpacking. The biggest risk when you're on a backpacking trip is the risk of falling. I'm not sure where you guys live, but I've spent enough time on hiking trails to know that you never walk near the edge of a steep drop-off or a cliff. Trust me, it is really not worth the Instagram clout. The fact is that the earth is kind of unstable. It's not exactly on your side, and though ground is often used as a metaphor for stability and security, that really isn't the case. Houses settle, earthquakes level buildings, and backpackers fall to their deaths because the ground shifts. Second to falling to your death, the biggest risk is water. Now, most of us have a respectable fear of water. We know drowning is bad and we try to avoid it. But sometimes you don't have a choice. 
and sometimes there are flash floods and that choice is made for you in the blink of an eye. If you've never stepped in a river up to your mid-shin and felt a terrifying current that's ready to send you to your death, well, suffice it to say that I wouldn't recommend it. Rivers are no joke and we should treat them with respect. The third most common cause of death while backpacking is generally related to your overall health. It might mean dehydration, heart attacks, or even extreme fatigue. Sometimes these are linked to underlying causes, sometimes they're a matter of a lack of preparation. But as far as I can tell, there isn't really a great way to prevent murder while backpacking, even if you think that you're prepared for it. One of the biggest things that they tell you when you do anything out in nature is not to do it alone. You shouldn't go hiking alone. You shouldn't go swimming alone. You shouldn't go backpacking alone. Most of us believe in the buddy system, but I'm here to ruin all of that for you. Because almost every victim of this killer had a buddy with them, and it didn't matter. So now that we've covered all of the very normal threats that nature has to offer, let's talk about the cause of death in what is now known as the backpacker murders. Between 1989 and 1993, several young adults were murdered in New South Wales, Australia. At the time, at least for some time, police believed that the cases were isolated. But with enough evidence, things started to look a bit shady. In my forensic psychology class back in college, we learned that police are always fairly resistant to the idea of serial killers. While serial killers are a fan favorite in the true crime community, and guys, I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing, the police are resistant to connecting murders. And that makes sense, right? If they connect cases that aren't connected, the evidence patterns can lead them down a completely wrong avenue. It's like blindly reaching into a box of puzzle pieces from different puzzles and choosing one just because it's blue and you're piecing together the sky. There's a pretty good chance that you're going to mess it up, but there was a serial killer on the loose, and this guy found the perfect victim pool. Hitchhikers. In this day and age, most of us know that hitchhiking and hitchhikers are bad news. Every single piece of media with a hitchhiking scene tends to end poorly. Whether it is getting assaulted or murdered as a hitchhiker or picking up a hitchhiker who turns out to be a killer, most of us agree that it's not a safe thing to do. And this story is probably partially responsible for that fear. Back in the 90s, hitchhiking was kind of normal in Australia. People used it as a way to get around while they traveled, and for a lot of people, that was fine. It was an exciting way to meet new people and hear interesting stories. But then hitchhikers started disappearing. That wasn't ideal, so people devised a new system. The buddy system. Everyone knows that if you're traveling with a pal, nobody can hurt you, right? Wrong. When bodies started showing up in Belangelo Forest, it seemed like a one-off situation. Sure, some people were killed, but it was probably just those people, and these things do happen. At least that's what everyone thought until more started showing up. Carolyn Clark and Joanne Walters were two British girls traveling together when they disappeared, and they were never heard from again in April of 1992. Five months later, a pair of runners stumbled across their bodies. And I know that I don't need to say it, but the moral of the story here really is, don't go running outside. You never know when you might trip over some bones, and finding a good therapist is harder than it sounds. 
Now, you should all know that I'm a huge fan of scary movies. I've got like a six-foot vertical anytime that anything pops out, but I really do love them. The gorier, the better. Fake gore is a lot of fun for me. Real gore is a different story. And I say this as a person who has cut up several human bodies. For school, of course. The point is, you won't find any detailed recounts of bodies on my show. But Carolyn and Joanne were hurt very badly. Carolyn was stabbed and Joanne had been shot. With enthusiasm, according to the records. A little over a year later, a man in the area was out looking for some firewood. This man just wanted to make a nice warm fire, maybe read a book, contemplate life. Instead, he found himself face-to-face with death when he discovered two bodies. The bodies belonged to Deborah Everest and James Gibson, two people who had been missing since they attended a local festival back in 1989. And their bodies were found far away from where James's backpack had been found the year after their disappearance. James had been stabbed multiple times, and Deborah was both beaten and stabbed. Less than a month after James and Deborah were found, police found the body of a German girl named Simone Schmidl, who went missing back in 1991. Like the others, she was stabbed, but this wasn't what caught the attention of the police. She was also found with clothing from another missing backpacker in the area, Anya Habschied. Three days later, police found Anya and her boyfriend, Gabor Nigebauer. Gabor had been shot, and as for Anya, well, they never found her head. To make matters worse, police don't think that the victims died instantly, which means they likely endured some degree of the torture that was afflicted upon them. So, that's kind of a worst-case scenario. Now, when police find a bunch of bodies in an area that show similar traits, they start to wonder. The majority of the victims were foreign travelers, people who could go missing without someone necessarily noticing immediately. But not all of them were. So the obvious response was to discourage hitchhiking in the area. It's the Jaws response, right? This is the backpacker equivalent of stay out of the water. With warnings in place, the police started trying to learn more, and what they learned was fairly disturbing. Based on the ways that the bodies were hidden, it was a safe assumption that the killer knew the area well. Given how far out in nature the bodies were, they also believed the person likely had some kind of vehicle to transport them. As far as murderers go, Deep Woods Camper Guy isn't really ideal, I think we can all agree. But that wasn't even the worst part. From what they could see, each of the victims was restrained, which means that they were tied up and taken out into the wilderness. The sheer horror of that situation is just too much to even imagine. Being tortured and killed is terrible, but being dragged out into the woods before you're tortured and killed, I just cannot imagine being that afraid. And hey, because this entire situation isn't horrific enough already, they also determined that the killer was making camp with his victims. They actually believed that he likely stayed in the camp, sitting and roasting serial killer marshmallows over the fire before and after he brutally murdered his victims. So how did they catch this disgusting piece of human corruption? Well, someone finally got away. 
1990, before the other bodies were ever found, the backpacker killer decided to strike. He picked up a man named Paul Onions. Paul was a backpacker, just like all the others, and he accepted a ride from a man who called himself Bill. And this is where my brain sucks, because I read this, and all I could think about was that part in True Blood where Sookie can't stop laughing about the main vampire being named Bill. But it was a fake name anyway, so moral of the story is just never trust a Bill, I think. To Paul's horror, fake Bill pulled a gun on him and pulled out some ropes. He told Paul that he was being robbed, and Paul, in a triumphant act of not today, Arya Stark energy, made a break for it and ran away while he was being shot at. Paul escaped. He found another driver, he hopped into their car, because what are the chances of running into two killers in one day? And then he called the cops and explained what happened. Paul was able to give a full description of the man and his vehicle. Unfortunately, this information didn't really become useful until three years later after the bodies were found and police started narrowing down their list of suspects. Paul likely thought that he was really just the victim of an attempted robbery. He probably believed that the man only shot at him to avoid being caught. So you can imagine his horror when he realized exactly what kind of ending he successfully dodged. And he actually did an entire interview on surviving a serial killer. As the list of killers narrowed, more information came in. The killer either fit the description perfectly, or more likely was a notably weird guy because three years later, his co-worker's girlfriend alerted police to his identity. His name was Ivan Millet. One of the funnier things that I found while researching was just how many people seemed disturbed by Malat's mustache. I'm not sure how we all decided that the mustache makes for good insight into someone's character, but the more I stared at it, the more I felt its sinister presence, so they, they might be onto something there. Armed with this new information, police decided to take action. In an honest-to-God stakeout, police began surveillance on him, they learned a lot of interesting and shady information from this. He had no alibi for the murder dates. He worked near a lot of the disappearance sites. And this is multiple locations. He sold his car right after Carolyn and Joanne were found. Oh, and he had a notable obsession with weapons. Further research revealed that Malat did not have a squeaky clean reputation. He'd been involved with police for everything from theft to breaking and entering, all the way to a rape charge that he was never convicted on. Everything about him seemed to shout, hey, I'm a bad guy, whether it was his criminal record or his repeat offenses when it came to having affairs with the girlfriends of several of his brothers. Apparently, he even used to brag about just how violent he was and would ramble on about stabbing someone in the spine to paralyze them, a detail which was present in several of the murders. Police knew enough by this point, but they called Paul in for one last detail. Three years after the attack, Paul identified Malat as the man that attacked him. And with the positive ID, police raided his home and found a wide range of weapons that matched the harm inflicted on the victims. Somehow, despite this, he still tried to claim that he was innocent, 
and he maintained his innocence. But it didn't work. He died in prison at the age of 74 from two kinds of cancer, after repeated hunger strikes and reportedly swallowing several sharp objects when cops weren't extra nice to him. Even though he went to jail and he is dead, it seems likely that justice has not truly been served. Police actually believe that he killed several more people in other areas over the span of decades, with some estimates stating that he might be linked to up to 20 murders in total. And there's also a good amount of evidence to suggest that he had an accomplice. Police investigated his long list of brothers, but nothing ever came of it. Surprisingly, some even say that on his deathbed, Malat's former lawyer told police that the accomplice was actually his sister. But nothing was ever proven. As if this one story isn't disturbing enough, Ivan Malat was not the end of the Malat's murderous legacy. In 2012, his great-nephew Matthew was charged after he murdered his friend with an axe in the very same forest. Apparently, when questioned in court, he simply said, that's what Malats do. So, it seems like there might be something going on in that family there that maybe we should be looking into, but I don't know. Point is, multiple violent murders and these two are actually largely blamed for the horrible reputation that Belangelo Forest has. In fact, other horrible things have since happened out there and everybody basically says that these guys paved the way for it. Ivan more than anything, but point is, don't go to Belangelo Forest, I guess, and especially don't go there with anybody. For now, the world is a little bit safer, and hopefully we won't hear about any other killers in the Malat family anytime soon. But I think we should probably all keep an eye out, because there were a lot of brothers in that family. I hope that this episode will serve as a lasting reminder that we all need to take care of ourselves out on the trails. Make sure that you have your supplies, hydrate, always let someone know where you are, and don't get into a car with anyone named Bill, anyone that has a mustache, or anyone who has any relation to the Malat family, because it just might be the last thing that you ever do. I hope that you guys enjoyed the show, and I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in. I've already received so much support online, and I cannot tell you how much that means to me. It's honestly, it's crazy. People always say this, you know, <laughs> in shows, but it really is amazing when it happens. Um, so thank you. But if you are interested in joining the Say No to Nature community, title pending, might hold a vote for it, honestly. <laughs> but um, if you are, feel free to follow the show on Twitter or Instagram with the tag at datpod. That is among the dirt and trees pod, but with letters. Or if you want to support the show and its creator, yours truly, feel free to pop over to my Patreon at patreon.com slash like and inscribe to join the community and cash in on some fun podcast extras. Thanks, guys. Stay safe out there.